um, every studio is going to have a different feel, a different vibe, the way they run things, and just the way they kind of let their artists do their thing. Hello, welcome everyone to Straight Ahead, an animation podcast where we spotlight rising by POC artists who are the future voices of the animation industry. I'm Raymond Ozalanda, one half of your co-host. And I'm Yuki Okamoto-Wong, the other half of our whole host. Our guest this week is Marvin Madrid. He's a Filipino artist working as a storyboard revisionist at DreamWorks TV. Would you mind telling us a bit more about yourself? Uh, hey guys, my name is Marvin. Um, I, Like I said, I'm a storyboard revisionist at DreamWorks TV. Uh, Filipino uh, from the Bay Area, born and raised, and I moved to LA right after... Or not right after, but shortly after college. Um, giant Disney fan. And yeah, that is me so far. Uh, so the way we like to start off straight ahead is by playing a fun little game called In Between. We're going to give you two similar choices and you have to choose in between the two of them and then let us know why. Oh, shoot. Okay. Yeah? Yes. <laughs> okay. No pressure. <laughs> it's just an icebreaker. <laughs> okay. Okay. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, this is meant just to kind of loose, loosen us up and then for for more fun later on. Perfect. Okay. Cool, cool. All right. So who's a better crime fighting duo, Osmosis Jones and Drix or Judy Hopps and Nick Wilde? I mean, ooh, that's a good question. Uh, Judy Hopps or Osmosis Jones? Um, you know, what? I think I'm going to go with Osmosis Jones and Drix here just because I feel like they've had years and years of experience ahead of Judy Hopps and Nick. Like, they are a great team, but they kind of stumbled into work. Well, that's not true. Osmosis Jones and Drix all stumbled into each other. Um, I'm still going to go with Osmosis Jones and Drix just because of years of experience. Yeah, I'm going to go with that. <laughs> they seem more, like, matured into it. <laughs> they seem a little bit more matured, you know? Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. I guess yeah, I guess they I, do like deal with viruses or whatever. That's more like world ending. <laughs> yeah, you know, I mean, like for them, Judy, yeah, Judy Hopps and Nick. What do they do? They yeah, sure, they save Zootopia from the sheep, I guess. But I don't know. Compared to like saving <laughs> the entire human body, uh, I think the scale's a little bit bigger for Osmosis Jones. <laughs> <laughs> it's like bigger and simultaneously smaller. Yeah, right. <laughs> um. All right. Okay. Last one. Who out of the Teen Titans would win as the imposter in a game of Among Us? Oh, shoot. That is so... Hard-hitting questions. Honestly, I think that would be Raven, because Raven is really... Yeah? Like, she could hide her emotions, you know? No one can no one can really read through her, her expressions, you know? Great poker face. Absolutely That's Raven. Solid. You, you, you wouldn't think it, it'd, be, it'd be Robin, the fact that he's like a detective and worked under Batman, <sighs> that he might be able to have more of that, like... Okay, see, to see people a lot I, more. That's a good point. Robin is, you know, he's a detective. <laughs> he's worked under Batman, but um, that would mean he's working with Starfire, and he's got a weakness for Starfire. I don't think he could lie to Starfire. <laughs> uh, Starfire. There's a lot at play him. here. There's a lot at play here. There's a lot at play. Marvin's Marvin's calculated all of the factors. I have, yeah. It can't be Beast Boy because you know Beast Boy. He can't lie. He's too silly. He's Cyborg, very bad. Cyborg, he's got, I'm sure he's got to tell as well. You know, he's a robot, so I don't know. Maybe it's like. <laughs> I feel like he'd be a good, like, saboteur. <laughs> yeah, maybe. Or he'd be known for, like, maybe pinpointing it on Beast Boy all the time for Among Us. Oh. <laughs> um, Starfire would be like that newbie player, like, wait, what's going on? There's an electric thing. What does that mean? You know? Or. She, like, kills know. someone right off. <laughs> 
or like calls an emergency meeting like the first five minutes or something. I don't know. Um, <laughs> yeah, she, um, she probably apologized for killing. Yeah, probably. So my my guess is definitely Raven. Probably okay, Raven. Cool. Good one. Good choice. Yeah, I agree with that. So that was in between. Thanks so much for playing with us for that little game. <laughs> Thank you for that game. That was a fun game. Really compelling uh, questions there. So, Marvin, uh, what what do you enjoy about being a storyboard revisionist at DreamWorks TV? What do I enjoy about being a storyboard revisionist at DreamWorks TV? There's a lot of things I enjoy. Um, it's learning from all the artists um, who I work with. Uh, story, uh, DreamWorks TV has amazing uh, storyboard artists um, under their belt. Like on my last show, uh, Fast and Furious, there was, you know, Grace Lou, uh, known as Grass Flu, online. Um, there was uh, Jarell Dampierre on Instagram. I, I think that's his handle as well. The directors, James Yang, George Gibson, Mike Gunnell, all these amazing artists who I learned from, uh, who, you know, they just kind of took me under their wing and made me, you know, skyrocket in progress from where I was before I started. So that was one of my favorite things of getting to work with them and learn their craft and uh, see myself improve uh, during the short couple of months because it's really sink or swim once you start, you know, uh, and then you just you got to hit the ground running and you see like a massive improvement in your uh, stuff um, like just a couple months after and you just keep improving because it's, it's constant drawing. So working with them has got to be my absolute favorite. All the, all the awesome artists. No, that, that's honestly super great. And it's like, yeah, like especially when you're in a revisionist position, it's very, it's still like, you know, real work, but it's also more of an opportunity for you to kind of learn under the board artist as well. So it's a great learning experience and entry-level position for uh, aspiring board artists. Oh, yeah, absolutely. Uh, can you tell us a little bit more about like, uh, I guess your experiences of like, being a revisionist and like what you did on a day-to-day and like what was your kind of thought process and trying to accomplish your deadlines and assignments? Yeah, absolutely. Um, and I know the, um, the experience for being a revisionist differs per show. Um, but this was for Fast and Furious. Um, it was a little bit of a, I guess you could say it was a little bit of a race on this show. <laughs> 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 um, but no, we were always trying to, you know, hit the deadlines. Um, and there were a lot of deadlines and we weren't exactly finish line. Yeah. It was a big race to the finish line. And, um, Mm. uh, the team was doing a lot of things at once. Um, so it was never really, I guess, leisurely, I would say. So it was pretty fast paced. Um, so my day to day looked like, um, we would get the uh, episode notes for that episode that we were working on from the director. Uh, there were three different directors and uh, every episode was a different director. And we would get oh, wow. two weeks with every director uh, to finish whatever revisions that we had. Um, and depending on the episode, it could be a lot. It could be a little bit depending on um, studio notes of, of the executives or Netflix notes. So from there, we get the list of the notes. The director tells us exactly which sections we have for the episode. Uh, let's say uh, I get there were three revisionists on the show. There was me, Daisy uh, and Tom. Um, and depending on the sections, uh, they would get dispersed based on our strengths or just whatever the director felt like giving us. Um, so I could get like the beginning also, of the episode. For, for your show. Sorry, my bad. Uh, yeah. Sorry to cut you off. So for your show, it was... Um... It was three revisionists for 
every episode instead of a revisionist tied to a specific boarding team? Yeah, see, that's why it's different because most shows they'll have a revisionist tied to a director, but for this one, it was just all hands on deck, whoever um, could was hopping on to, yeah, helping the current director. Um, So, very very cool. Yeah. um, So that was really nice because you didn't have like to take on the entire episode yourself. Mm-hmm. Yeah, totally. also when you said two weeks, two weeks for an entire episode with one person, that's daunting. So yes. that's, that's for like the three people, right? That's available. People. Yeah, so it's three people for two weeks on one episode. So Oh, that's um, that's pretty good actually. Yeah, it mm-hmm. was like we were we were a great team. Um and they got on before I did. They were on since the beginning of the show and I hopped on uh after. Um so they they were great in uh, transitioning me into day to day life. So yeah, we would get the notes of what the directors want, and the notes could be really specific. They could be like, "Oh, okay, um, can you change the expressions on this character, or uh, plus the acting, or um, oh, we changed the model of this car to this car. So for every board that this car is in, change the model from the updated to the updated version." Or they could go as extreme as like, oh, hey, so we're, you know, changing this entire scene. Um, could you um, revise it, reboard the scene and stuff like that? Um, which was cool because I also got a lot of reboarding opportunities. Sometimes it'd be, um, you know, the directors would already have it thumbnailed or they would want some ideas. So you would pitch out some ideas for them. Um, and from then you just get your stuff out as quickly as possible. Um, they never exactly gave you like a, oh, okay, well, here's your section. I want it done like tomorrow. Um, mm. They kind of just went like, all right, well, whenever you get back, we get it back to me, you know, just get it back to me. And it's just kind of assumed that, you know, of course you want to work on it ASAP, get it done ASAP for them because there's going to be other sections waiting for you. And then at the end of the two weeks on Friday is when all your sections are due. And if there's sometimes, you know, uh, you could be done beforehand and it could be a uh, really easy rest of the week or easy, you know, rest of the two days and you are just kind of sitting waiting for them or it could bottleneck. Um, there's one director we had who, um, <laughs> it'd be like really slow, uh, first week and the second week, everything bottlenecks. Cause that's when he manages to get up notes for the changes that he wants. Um, right. So then he's like, oh, okay, well, hey guys, I know you had a slow week last week. Here's everything I want. Um, I just finished up the notes. <laughs> Go, be free. And we've got like a week to do them all. Or like maybe So, like, instead of really being two weeks, it's like one week of like 20% of the notes and then one week of like the rest. Exactly. Of the so that was a little, <laughs> that was like the tough times of like, oh, shoot. Okay, we gotta, we gotta go. Um, and, yeah, that would be some late nights sometimes and stuff, overtime, of course. But um, yeah, that's what my day to day would look like. It would really depend on the director. And uh, one of the other things was you had to cater to the director's styles, too. Uh, we had three different directors and they each had their own um, different style mm-hmm. um, of what they wanted. So and sometimes uh, when I first started, I didn't know that. So sometimes they would contradict each other. So like for one director, right. he would like an acting this way um but then the next week i would do kind of similar acting for that and they'd be like oh no no, i don't like that don't ever do that i'm like oh shoot (laughs) so uh it was uh challenging at first but you you learn which director likes what pretty quickly (laughs) that's that's Mm -hmm. interesting is there like anything you noticed that helped you sort of break down what each director likes or was it just a matter of like over time like taking a note here and a note there (sighs) 
I mean, I'm a giant people pleaser. So as soon as somebody would be like, um, hey, so don't do this again. I'd be like, oh, okay. And I'd really take that to heart. <laughs> and you shouldn't do that, of course. You know, it's just like feedback. But me as a person, I'm like, oh God, okay. I'm never doing that again. He has to like my stuff. I'm never doing it again. So that was, that was how I did it. Yeah. That must've been hard kind of like juggling three directors then if they all had such different styles. Yeah. Um, yeah. Cause definitely on different, on other shows, it typically, from my from my understanding, is yeah, a division is assigned to a team, and so you only have to deal with that one director. I'm kind of in a similar boat to you, Marvin. For the for Gremlins, uh, I re- do revisions on all the episodes, so it's, a, it's also a team of three, and we're not assigned to a specific director. We just generally work on uh, every episode that kind of comes in. Mm. So, but the thing with our show is so that we actually have a revisionist director as well. Oh wow! I've so never heard of that the, revisions director. That's cool. Yeah, I think it's. I, I think it's like it's not a common position, but it's been honestly really helpful for our production, where mm-hmm. the supervising director and then the revision director they kind of meet and discuss the notes that the supervising director wants because he's like you know overseeing the whole production, and right. uh, on their behalf, the revisionist director meets up with the episodic director as well, and then from there we kind of get the notes relayed to us, and then we go from there. Interesting. Yeah, I think for us, that role is kind of uh, fulfilled by the production coordinator, specifically the, the one that works with uh, story. We have a specific, we have a whole, our production team is probably a lot bigger than uh, most. Um, and we have a production team, a coordinator for like assets, a coordinator for uh, story, and the story coordinator uh, is the one who kind of deals with that stuff, relays the notes back and forth between director and revisionists if needed. Uh, real quick, I want to go back to um, you were saying like uh, for Fast and Furious specifically, obviously it's like racing um, when like a new model for a car would come out. Are you using like 3D models or are you guys like actually drawing like new car angles? Oh, yeah. There? So, um, I mean, you could choose to draw uh, the cars if you wanted. But since mm-hmm. there were a lot of race scenes, it'd be a lot of car drawings. So luckily, yeah. um, what everybody mostly did was they either just used the car models and just imported that from Maya or directly into Storybook Pro. Same with all the backgrounds too uh like i said with our show we were doing a lot of the stuff at the same time so they were um making the backgrounds and the cars the same time as the boards which um had its uh, ups and downs um but one of the ups was you know you get to use that in your boards um they'd be pretty close to final um and so we for our show we luckily didn't have to draw the backgrounds too much or the cars we would just import them directly into storyboard pro or maya mm-hmm. um take screenshots of the backgrounds that we need and just go from there so we would just focus on drawing the characters and focus on the acting um and all the props that we need uh, we would draw those into um if there were any a time where we didn't have the car models ready uh we could use like a generic car model change it up later or you know if you were bold you'd just draw it in but you would just import it again later <laughs> So you didn't have like a lot of car drawing experience or like mechanicals experience or anything, right? Oh, before the show, I knew nothing about cars. I was, <laughs> I was like, <laughs> yeah, no, every, everybody on the show was like a giant car buff, car nerd. Um, one of our uh, car designers, 
Uh, we, uh, his name was uh, Walter Kim. He was actually um, supposed to go design cars to be made before we stole him uh, to the show. We were like, I guess our director was like, um, uh, hey, do you want to design some cars for a show? And he was like, yeah, sure. That sounds awesome. So um, he was a huge car buff. And during like lunch and stuff, everybody would like talk shop about cars and stuff. And they'd go to races for fun. And they'd be like, oh, did you see this new model of this car and this car? And I'm like, I don't know man i don't know car breeds i know like hard blue i know <laughs> i don't know what else so i learned a lot about cars on this show one of the first mistakes i made was um since they're all race cars they're all like manual cars i don't know what anything about manual cars one of the characters had to like uh use the handbrake or no uh shift gears i think uh really quickly um because that's what you do when you're driving a manual car uh when you're driving yeah. fast and no, stuff I, i've never learned to drive a manual yeah it's all so automatic i was me. like okay fine so i drew that into into the boards um and my director came back to me um and he was like hey have you ever driven a uh, manual car before i'm like no why i was like okay because in this scene you made him uh switch gears on the handbrake that's the handbrake and i was like oh <laughs> so, <laughs> where he like he like pulls it up or something yeah i thought, I thought instead of there's shift. like the gear shift where it's like in a h formation or something like that yeah uh-huh. so it's there's, um, there's, and there's a separate there's a third pedal right yeah for the clutch for the, yeah, yeah so i don't know I, it looked like um it looked like the gear because it was right next to him like next to the seat i figured oh that's probably the gear shift but and it was like a huge stick <laughs> so like funny. sticking up you know usually it's like the like, emergency were you, were you looking at the model <laughs> yeah. that's so great that's to, funny to like uh, that they um i guess like they recruited you on the show probably because of like some of your your acting skills or something in your boards then because like clearly you didn't know anything yeah, clearly about not because i'm a car enthusiast yeah. or i know like you know the mechanics <laughs> of any car or anything so clearly not that <laughs> oh damn that's uh that's pretty good that's funny being being caught not knowing stuff within your drawings is that's hilarious yeah no luckily he was great about it um i was like oh no, sorry that's let good. me change that but yeah i was um very inexperienced when it came to cars so how did your experience working on fast and furious by races differ from madagascar a little a little wild um, okay, so this was like a huge gear shift when I did a little bit of freelance for them. Uh, cause you know, Fast and Furious is like very serious, very actiony with like people, very action style. And then you move on to like Madagascar, which was very cutesy and these little talking animals who sing. I was like, whoa, total 180. Um, <laughs> so I really had to, and I'm awful at drawing like cartoony style. I'm known more for drawing like the action style, drawing people. I'm, you know, I really yeah. Felt, your anatomy is super, super good. Like, your understanding <laughs> of anatomy is so solid. Thank you. I was about to mention that, like, I folk, I hyper focus on anatomy, which sometimes holds me down. So that's why when I was on Madagascar, I was like, okay, wait, what's the anatomy of this like hippo? What's the anatomy of this lion? But wait, they're standing on two legs, so I don't think that's important and stuff. And I had to really like just flip that switch off in my brain and just like learn to draw a little bit more cartoony. Um, so it was a little bit. A lot different, I should say. The way they do, they were a lot more loose. Um, they they didn't really um, focus too much on like clean drawings. It was just very loose, um, flowy drawings of these little animals. Uh, what really mattered was definitely the poses mattered mattered a little bit more and um, expressions. So, and then this was also different because they drew in their backgrounds, which was like, oh shoot, I'm used to importing it. So let me test out my background <laughs> skills again. Perspective. What is this? Ah. <laughs> 
So it was a huge difference, but it was a lot of fun though. Cause you know, it was like I said, talking, dancing, animals who sing and stuff. The stories were a lot more lighthearted, of course, you know, they weren't like trying to race to save the world or anything. It like one of the episodes was like, Oh, you know, maybe today we'll go like, um, sneak into this place or, Oh, you know, I kind of want to do this today. You know, it was very lighthearted and stuff. And in the end there was of course like a valuable lesson because it was a kind of aim for more younger audience. So there was like a lighthearted lesson at the end. So it was, it was really fun. <laughs> so how did, how did like that kind of occur? If, because you're saying it's like completely out of your wheelhouse, like not in your normal style, like you really don't do cartoony stuff. And it was nothing like the previous show you were on, even though it was at the same studio, right? Yeah. So how that work was, um, DreamWorks has a kind of internal, um, artist manager person who manages all the artists. So if like another show, um, needs some work done, they'll reach out to other artists on other shows and be like, Hey, would you like some overtime to freelance on this? This show could really use some help right now. They're kind of understaffed. Um, it could be like in the situations of if some of the artists on their show went on vacation or went on some leaves or if stuff happened and they had to leave, um, they could be like, Hey, you know, the show really needs your help. Um, and they would just reach out to you via email. Um, and of course they would, uh, let your production know too, to make sure that like, oh, Hey, is it cool if I contact this artist on your show? Um, if time permits and, uh, whether you, you or not they get approved, um, uh, yeah, they just reach out to you and it's up to you whether or not, if you want to take that extra work. Hmm. Interesting. So, but they like, didn't really look at your, your whole body of work. They were just like, uh, maybe Marvin's <laughs> free. <laughs> yeah, pretty, I, pretty much. Cause if they saw my, uh, experience on there, they would see no really cartoony stuff, but, um, <laughs> I think they go based on, um, recommendation, uh, from the line producer. They'll be like, Hey, uh, who on your show, um, could maybe handle this workload right now or stuff like that. Um, and they just pointed to me and my other, um, revisionist, uh, coworker. Man, that's really cool. That's also really cool that DreamWorks has that kind of internal thing. Yeah. DreamWorks is really good about that. Um, they also have this really cool thing about, um, trying to keep their artists for as long as possible, which is great. So if you're in, uh, they try to keep you. Um, so once you're done with your show, I don't know if other, um, companies do this, but, uh, right from the bat. Uh, when I was being interviewed, they mentioned this and I thought it was really cool. But, um, once you're wrapped up on your show, um, or about to wrap up three months beforehand, they'll start to ask you for like the stuff you've done for your show to put into like your internal drive. So then they could start to scout for like other upcoming shows, uh, that may need, um, artists and they'll kind of move you around. So, which is really great for, um, you know, your career. If you want to just keep going like in this, field <laughs> and that's what happened to you right you're currently right now still doing tv but on an announced project yeah so uh i was wrapping up on fast and furious um a couple months beforehand i think it was maybe two three months beforehand uh they were like hey uh can we meet with you you're about to uh wrap up on here we want to make sure uh you can get handed off to another show so uh, i met with the artist coordinator person who met, does all that um, she was taking a look at all my stuff and I was like, okay, so and she asked me like what kind of stuff I'm into, um, which is really nice that they take that into consideration. Um, and they're like, okay, well, we've got this, this, and this show coming up. Um, I can try and, um, pitch you into those. And you're just like, all right, cool. Uh, and then a couple of weeks later, they let you know there's an interview, just like any other thing of the showrunner interviews you with like the production and then you wait and you find out if you get in or not. Cool. Did you, did you have to take another test or was it just based on your body of work? 
Uh, no, I didn't have to test for this time. Uh, they, uh, it was just based on the body of work, I guess. That's, also, that's honestly really cool. Yeah. Because sometimes just doing a test is so nerve-wracking. Yeah, it's pretty exhausting. <laughs> it's it's taxing on um, mental health because you're like, ah, I got to get this done on time. Like, oh, man, you know, what are they thinking? Is this good? This is trash. I hate myself. And all that, so. <laughs> yeah, you have, like, no support. That's, like, one of the only moments when it's it's all on you because yeah. when you're actually when you're working like when you're in a pipeline at least you can lean on like the advice of others like what other people are doing being like oh can i compare this like is this in the right track for like the final product but when you're doing a yeah, test yeah. it's just it's just you yeah it's just you yeah. but no i mean like even if you are taking the test though you can ask for feedback from other people before submitting it um that is encouraged um so that is a thing you can do if you ever do want to take a test <laughs> uh with within the people in the studio, right? Like, or oh yeah, yeah, of course. Like, um, like let's say if uh, I guess this goes more for like if you're um in the studio uh and you're going for a show in that same studio because of course if it's like NDA, you know, mm -hmm. you don't want to show yeah. that off. So, uh, what was your experience like being a production intern on Summer Cap Island at Cartoon Network? Uh, that was really fun because that was my very first introduction to the um animation experience. Um, and going, being in DreamWorks now, there's like a stark difference in studios. You could really see, um, every studio is going to have a different feel, a different vibe, the way they run things and just the way they, um, kind of let their artists do their thing. Because Cartoon Network was great. They were very free. Uh, it was, they're kind of like the cool, like, uh, indie studio of like, they kind of run their own thing. Um, they're kind of all the cool, like hipster artists. I feel very like, Oh, I'm going to do this and this and this, um, without kind of the heavy hand of executives. I mean, of course they do have the heavy hand of executives, but I feel like less so compared to like maybe DreamWorks and Disney. It was really cool. Uh, I got onto summer camp Island with, um, uh, Julia Potts, uh, was the showrunner and she's really cool. She's really nice. She's, um, yeah, she's a big sweetheart. Um, and I got to, um, I don't know if it was like the traditional, uh, production intern experience. I did a lot of like handling of like, of course there was like, um, handing off files to people and like, you know, handing out time cards to people. Um, and, but I also got to kind of work with the files, I guess I could say. Um, they would like, oh, uh, they knew, they found out I, I could use Photoshop pretty well. <laughs> um, so they're like, oh, uh, you know Photoshop pretty well. Can you like fix these assets? Because uh, like some of the layers are off. I'm like, oh, could you like maybe erase around here and stuff? And I could do that pretty quickly. So they had me kind of fix those. I don't know if that's difficult for production and stuff. But of course, other than that, I did like all the schedule, helping with scheduling, helping with meetings and all that kind of stuff. And it was really great hands-on experience, of course, to see how the production pipeline works and um, during that time too, um, for production insurance at Cartoon Network, you had to create a pitch at the end of it. So you're balancing like all your duties intern wise with making your own pitch to pitch at the very end of your internship, which was really cool. So, uh, during then you could ask for advice from the artists. Um, so, which was cool. I got to ask all the storyboard artists on that show, like, Hey, could you help me out with this pitch? Could you, you know, look over this and stuff? And I got some really great feedback from them. It was a great experience overall. Yeah. It's really awesome. Was there was there any skills that you learned as a production intern that carried over when you became a story visionist? Yeah, absolutely. Uh, I got to, you know, seeing the pipeline for one thing. So you see like where the boards go and what's important, like let's say what the background artists need for boards. So you kind of keep in mind 
of that when you're doing boards and what animatics, you know, what, what do the animatic editors look for and stuff when you're doing your boards? Yeah, you just see the whole picture so you can see uh, pinpoint places of like, okay, so while I'm doing these boards, I got to keep in mind, you know, this uh, dev, I got to keep in mind, the animatic editor, I got to keep in mind uh, if they need to change this or um, all these assets that are needed, um, shot counts, um, all that kind of stuff. So it was really, really helpful to see that. I think these are things that like uh, storyboarders aren't necessarily like uh, ignoring or anything like that, but it's definitely easier when you like have the experience of being in production and you have the time to just kind of like look at the overview and then like absorb that and then go into a storyboarding job and kind of like apply that information already as opposed to like yeah, absolutely. already working as a storyboarder and then um, trying to think of everybody else's jobs, but you're trying mm -hmm. to do your own <laughs> Yeah. I think I think yeah. it's harder. It's like a different experience. Yeah, but that's also a, a cool thing that you that you picked up on and you were able to bring into your story revisionist position because I think that's one of the things that uh, you kind of we kind of learned going through school. For those that don't know, Marvin, Yuki, and I we all went to San Jose State University. Yes. Is that majority of our professors constantly said like, "Oh, if you can, try to make the person after you's jobs easier if you can." So yes, you always like exactly. make the yeah, always try to make it easier on the production. Always try to make it easier for the next person. And that's all, that's honestly super cool that you're able to pick that up in an intern role and bringing it to your artist role. Yeah. So more more about you, Marvin. So I know that you're such a, a huge fan of comics. Like comics <laughs> is a big expression for you and your art. So what are what are some of your favorite comics? What 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 about them inspire you? I mean, ever since I was a kid, I grew up reading comics, whether it was like, um, you know, Superman, Batman, Spider-Man, all that stuff. But I was always a big lover of X-Men comics uh, growing up. Um, even up until now, I'm still reading the X-Men comics. And I don't know, I guess it was just the story or if it's the art, um, mainly the art. If the art, if the artist for the issue is really great, it really attracts me into reading the story. But of course, the story of the X-Men is really cool. Just like, oh, these people who are different, but they're um, outcasts. You know, people don't like them, even though they're trying to do good for these people. I think it's, you know, complex stories like that is really cool. Like, uh, I was really into Superman for a while when I was a kid, but then after a while I was just like, okay, this guy's too perfect. You know, there's not really anything there, <laughs> you know, yeah. like he's, he's like got everything and like, what's his, he's got like one weakness, trip the night, you know, and not, not really any issues, you know, so it wasn't as interesting. So mm -hmm. I guess it was the stories and, you know, the art, uh, like I said, the art is always really cool. Um, and I took a lot of inspiration from those artists, you know, just redrawing like some panels when I was growing up and that's what really got me into art. Um, just drawing these superhero characters over and over in the style of my favorite artists. And then uh, for me, drawing is that also Moon, what got you really interested in anatomy, like reading yeah, the absolutely. comics, is that where your love for anatomy comes from? <laughs> yeah. Um, my love for anatomy definitely comes from comic books. Um, one of my best friends told me like, Oh, you know, you draw every character like buff. You need to stop that. And I'm like, I'm sorry. <laughs> it's just so appealing. It's just so the hard appealing. edges, like, the contrast. Yeah, the hard edges, the contrast is so cool. Uh, it's so um, but yeah, no, that's definitely where I picked up most of my drawing skills was, um, redrawing from artists that I love and then the qualities that I liked from that artists, um, I would just kind of keep for myself and make into my own style. So like, uh, some artists, for example, that I loved growing up was like, uh, Jim Lee Jim Lee was mm -hmm. known for his anatomy, which is great. But also I loved Humberto Ramos, which is great because he had kind of like this cartoony, like very stylized style. And 
um, as I grew older, um, they're like Stuart Imonen, uh, Imonen, I don't know how to say his last name, um, Pepe Larraz, uh, all these other artists who are just amazing. I would just take, um, stuff from their art, like whether it's their stylization, their line quality, uh, how they draw this or that, and just kind of absorb that into my own, uh, tool belt. So like why then animation? Like, um, if like, I guess the, the first inspiration for you was comic books, uh, why did you decide to go to animation instead? I mean, uh, yeah, no, um, I absolutely wanted to go into comic books first, mm -hmm. um, before this, but everyone was saying like my professor, uh, John Clapp told me, <laughs> um, and, like some other artists were like, don't, don't go into comics. It doesn't make you money and stuff. And I'm like, Oh, it's okay, really hard I'll... to make money in comics. <laughs> yeah. And I was like, Oh, okay. There goes my dreams. Um, oh. but, um, oh. no, I found out like a lot of, um, a lot of storyboard artists start out wanting to go into comics. I think all of my directors wanted to go into comics. I remember talking to one of my directors, Micah Gunnell. Um, he actually worked for Aspen Comics uh, for a, a long time before breaking out into the animation industry. Um, he got into comics, um, worked with uh, crazy um, good comic book artists like Michael Turner and stuff. Um, and when work starts to slow down, he was like, oh, shoot, like, what am I going to do? Um, and then someone said, hey, you should go into animation. It's like drawing comics uh, for storyboarding. It's, it's just like drawing comics, except, you know, you don't have to be as clean. Uh, you're just drawing more panels. And he was like, huh, okay. Um, and someone told me that. I was like, oh, just go into storyboard art. It's kind of, you know, the same thing, sequential art, except less clean. You're just drawing a little bit more, but it's essentially the same thing, you know? And I was like, okay. So I um, looked that up um, and found interest in that because it was the next closest thing. For sure. No, that's awesome. I think something similar happened to me. Uh, San Jose State, I fell in love with 2D animation. And when I wanted to pursue that, everybody kept telling me, there's no work in 2D here in the States. Like, there's no jobs out there. <laughs> that's a like, lie, right? That's what I do right it. now. <laughs> it's a big lie. I'm kidding. Anyway, keep going. <laughs> But no, but I mean, like, I mean, actually, like, traditional shoes, like, you're working in, uh, you do puppet rigs. I, like, I, I don't think I can wrap my head around that. It's also one of the, like, I couldn't also, I couldn't wrap my head around 3D either. So I was like, damn, what am I going to do? I hate <laughs> animating in 3D. And then, yeah, people were telling me, like, oh, just go into storyboarding because it's basically just the key poses mm -hmm. of anim of 2D animation. And, like, you still get to do the acting, you still get to draw. I was like, okay, cool. Yeah, that makes a, that makes a lot of sense for me. And then. So yeah, it's, I went from wanting to be a 2D animator to transitioning into storyboards. Yeah, I feel like it's a, storyboards are really a big middle ground for people who want to be comic book artists or animators. You know, you get kind of the best of both. So going back to you and like being a board artist, what kind of what kind of stories do you like to tell as a board artist? And does your cultural background kind of influence that in any way, shape or form? Mm, stories that I like to tell. I mean, if we're talking just like genre wise, I love action adventure stuff. Um, I've always loved anything that has to do with like magic growing up. So anything with like wizards, warlocks and all this stuff. I loved that kind of stuff. But um, now being a little bit more experienced, I definitely value um, above all else, just something with meaning, something that a complex story with complex characters, characters that are more you know, more than like the one direct, uh, one dimensional or two dimensional like stereotype 
um, or one-dimensional st- uh, stereotypes or tropes that they are, you know, um, that's really important to me. Uh, character development is super important to me. So anything that uh, has just to do with like characters that grow uh, and stories that have really good lessons, those are the most important stories to tell me uh, for me to tell. Culturally, um, at first it didn't, but with recent events that have been happening in the world lately, I think it's. I definitely think and have been more aware of now, like telling. Uh, more diverse stories is definitely more important now more than ever. So um, stories that I've been thinking of in my head, um, you know, automatically um, what I would think of is like, oh, okay, like maybe this this character is like white and stuff. But now I think of it's more important to have diverse diversity, you know, to see those people represented. Uh, So I definitely keep that in mind now when I'm like trying to make up stories in my head and make, you know, uh, characters for that story. Like, okay, this character should be culturally this and this and this. Yeah. A lot of artists that I admire a lot have been doing that too. Um, And I've been really drawn to like, you know, Filipinos. I'm, I'm Filipino. So I've been seeing a rise of like a lot of Filipino art on my Instagram and on like Vimeos for like short films and stuff. Um, and even now for like Netflix, they're creating like a Filipino, um, based story based on like this kind of bounty hunter or something, uh, that, uh, hunts Filipino, uh, folklore legend and stuff, which is really exciting to see all these stories come to life. I was like, wow, I never thought I'd see this. You know, I know these legends myself because growing up, I heard them all from my mom and stuff. So, you know, it's important to see that. So, uh, that's definitely made a huge impact on the stories I want to tell now. It's really cool. Dude, no, that's that's very true. Cause like I feel like out of uh, I feel like out of Asian, the Asian community, Filipinos are the most underrepresented of that community. So I've been I have been seeing also more rise of like Filipino ex artists that are trying to promote the culture and their work a lot more. Yeah, that's actually something I want to ask you. Like, have you always felt that? Or have you noticed that as well? As far as like when it comes to like Asian representation on on TV or the or uh, movies and film, do you feel like? Like Filipino kind of tends to be in the background, not even mentioned when it comes to like Asian characters. Yeah, absolutely. Because you know, uh, growing up, like if there were any Asian characters, they'd be um, in cartoons. They'd be like Chinese or um, maybe Japanese, because you'd see them with like stereotype, like oh, uh, here's this character with like a dragon. You know, they're Japanese or here they're Chinese and stuff like that. Um, you wouldn't really see any Filipino characters in uh, animation films or even like films in general really so when i started seeing it just uh yeah in general just seeing it recently it's like wow hey this was possible i never really thought of you know incorporating filipinos into this so it'd be cool to help out with that to help jumpstart that into this industry to, to tell their stories and all this stuff so that'd be really cool and it doesn't necessarily have to be on on like you as the individual is like oh uh, yeah, yeah absolutely you know, <laughs> spreading your own culture. But that's really cool that you resonate with that like not necessarily uh, seeking it out, but like noticing that there was a lack of it before. Whereas yeah. like now there's sort of like a rise in um, more people of that culture like coming forward and telling stories, and you're like, oh, I do relate to this. Mm-hmm. <laughs> this is something yeah. I haven't mm-hmm. seen before. <laughs> <laughs> And so, do you see, moving forward, do you see yourself using your voice as an artist to contribute to that? Oh, absolutely! Yeah, any opportunity I can. Like, if a, if an opportunity comes up for um, uh, to be on a project that's like has to do with the Filipino culture or like any diverse culture, really, it, it'd be great to hop onto that. Or um, you know, whether it's me um, making something or pitching something, but any way I can contribute, I would I would love to. So, I, I guess going on. 
going off that idea of pitching, do you, or in that in that vein, do you see yourself being uh, some kind of supervising or episodic director in the future? Yeah, absolutely. Um, you know, a couple months ago, I was a hard no for that um, of like being a director. I was like, oh man, that's I think that's a lot of responsibility. That's uh, that's you know a lot. <laughs> mm-hmm. I don't know if I would want that. I think I'd be good with just being a board artist and that's it. <laughs> Um, but I don't know, being, you know, in this time of like quarantine and just being at home, working a lot and kind of just sitting around the house, I'm like, Hmm, that would be actually cool, um, to be in charge and stuff and, um, be able to kind of shift the narrative toward your own style, depending on the episode or something, or, you know, just have more of your input in there, um, would be really, really cool to take on that leadership role. Um, I don't know what, what shifted that change but i don't know maybe just overnight or something or maybe something i watched but to think about it it'd be really cool to um because yeah when you're in that director role you're you've got a little bit more control and you know um, it goes back to what we were talking about of like um incorporating the stories that you want to tell you know like it gives you more of an opportunity for that for sure that's great i'm I'm also because like i i've had classes with you i've um i've seen your work and i think you definitely have the chops and the skills to be a director and to like carry out a vision for any You're kind way of series, too kind. whether Thank you, you thank get you. your own or get, or get the opportunity. No, I, I, tr- I truly deeply mean it. To keep talking about you and to actually go back earlier in your career, even before your career, it's something I feel like a lot of our listeners might find really helpful or insightful is, uh, is the most scariest thing when you're out of school is getting that first job. How actually, how long, were you out of school before you landed your first job at DreamWorks? I would say maybe like half a year, maybe a little bit more. I don't exactly remember. But uh, after I graduated um, San Jose State, I was just like, oh, shoot, like this is it. I'm done with school. Like I, I got to go. You know, I got to I got to get something. And of course, you know, I was doing what you're supposed to of like sending out tons and tons of, you know, applications, submitting to applications, um, revising my cover letter like so many times, having so many different drafts saved on my computer, updating my portfolio here, like here and there and stuff, reaching out to recruiters. And it was all just a matter of waiting uh, during that uh, half a year or so. I was working retail. Um, I was working at the Disney store and, you know, it's, it's stark difference of like working retail to this, but, um, it was just, you know, it can get discouraging of like, um, man, like, am I going to be like in this retail job forever? Like, what if I don't get there and stuff? But it's just, it really is a matter of timing. Cause that's all it was for me. Um, I was working at the Disney store one day, uh, in the middle of my shift, one of my, uh, friends from school texted me, um, Annie, Annie Shu, uh, and I went to high school with her, uh, and we went through the major together. Um, and she was on Fast and Furious and she texted me like, Hey, are you, uh, still looking for a job right now? And I was still at work during the time I wasn't supposed to be messaging, but I was like, uh, yeah, I'm going to reply to this. <laughs> so I was behind the register, like ringing somebody up, but like texting underneath the register, like, yeah, I am. What's up? <laughs> and she's like, uh, our revisionist, one of our revisionists is, uh, leaving. Um, do you mind if I send them, uh, my directors, your portfolio? And I was like, oh yeah, absolutely. And so I like sent her the link right away and stuff. So that was my transition, which is uh, great. Um, I got 
uh, call for an interview, which had me really stoked. Uh, and that led to like another interview and another interview. And, uh, I got the okay, uh, that like I got it. Um, and they're like, Hey, so can you move here in like a week and a half? And I was like, uh, <laughs> yeah. Oh, <laughs> uh, so I told work like, Hey, um, so this is my two weeks kind of not two weeks notice, but I kind of got a job, a full-time job. Um, so I got to move and they were like, Oh, um, okay. Can you get all your shifts covered? And I was like, uh, I could try. <laughs> um, and I packed up all my stuff and I moved to to LA <laughs> in like a week and a half that's crazy yeah in a week and a half oh, I had to find is, like a place to move insane. I had to uh, pack up all of my stuff so it was a really stressful week and a half but um, yeah it was the best week and a half of my life because I was like hey this is it this is my start <laughs> you know no that that's honestly it's, it's super cool he- hearing your story because I feel like yeah, like um, some people are lucky enough to get a job straight out of school. Some people like take a couple years afterwards. But I can imagine like at the time you probably were like either doubting yourself or questioning or whatever. But like it eventually did happen for you. And did you feel like after you got that job and retrospect that half a year or more than half a year didn't feel as long? Or did it feel like forever like you being without an industry job out of school? During the time, it definitely felt like forever, um, you know, because uh, it's discouraging right after um, graduating and you don't have a job lined up, you know, you feel like, I don't know, you just feel really discouraged, you know, of like, oh man, like, what am I doing wrong? And you, you kind of blame it on yourself. And it's just, you know, it's just this nagging thing in the back of your mind. Um, and you finally get it and you're a little relieved. Um, so it definitely felt like a while, but in retrospect, it's, you know, it wasn't, um, I got really lucky actually, because, uh, like you said, it could take people, you know, months. It could take years. Um, I have some coworkers who got in the industries like in the thirties and stuff. So it's different for everybody. Um, and the main thing to know is, and you know, if you're still waiting for a job, it, you know, it might be harder to believe this, but it's not on you. It really is just timing because it depends on like what the industry is putting out right now and what they're looking for for the show and whether or not your star lines up with the show. Um, it's, it's really all timing. But with that said, like, you know, timing favors the prepared. So, you know, if an opportunity does arise, uh, you have to be ready for that. Like you have to have your portfolio ready. You have to have your chops ready. So just always be prepared. But in the end, it does come down to timing, I believe. Lastly, uh, what advice do you have for any students that want to pursue a career in this industry? Absolutely. You to pursue a, a career in this industry, you have to be dedicated. Yeah. I think that's my number one advice. You have to be dedicated. You got to put in everything, um, for this, you know, um, I started off, um, not, this was initially not my career path. I was, you know, going to be, I wanted to be a, I thought I wanted to be a physical therapist before this. Um, I switched oh, wow. into the major. Yeah. Uh, my first year of San Jose state, I was in kinesiology and I was like, okay, yeah, this isn't for me. I'm like the skinny Asian kid drawing in the back with like the front <laughs> of the classroom, of, like all these really buff guys who are like really passionate about working out and all that. And I'm like, ah. wait, quick, quick question. Quick, quick question. Is the reason why you, wanted to be a physical therapist, wanted to kinesiology, was it also because of the anatomy of comics <laughs> and you were interested in the anatomy of the human body? I guess so, yeah. I've, I've always been like growing up, I was kind of a science geek uh, in high school. I love science. I love biology. Uh, I loved anatomy. Um, so I guess, I guess so, kind of. I was just always attracted to anatomy because maybe it all stemmed from comics. Who, who knows? <laughs> but um, <laughs> yeah, I switched into the major half 
uh, my first year, I was like, I'm not happy. And then I had some friends in the major who were drawing and I always loved drawing. So I was like, Hey, let me take a crack at it. Um, and I walked into John Klopp's office, um, and was like, Hey, I want to switch majors. Um, and one of the things he said was you have to be dedicated. You got to be sure. Um, you know, cause this major, <laughs> this major is John very Klopp. like rigorous. Yeah. You know, you guys know John, so you would know exactly how you would say it. Yeah, yeah. Um, he like sat me down and was like, can I see some of your drawings? And I uh, showed him like the sketchbook that I had and he was like, okay. Um, yeah. Uh, just, you have to be dedicated. Like, it's not just like, Oh, I'm going to draw and get a major. It's like, no, it's hard work and you have to put everything into it if you if you're really serious about it and um i think that still rings true um if you want to pursue a career in this industry you know you gotta incorporate art into your lifestyle you have to uh, in a healthy way of course not like you know think of art every waking minute of your day but like in a healthy way of like you know <laughs> be curious think of stories uh look around and just be inspired practice your drawing as much as you can do the most to try and stand out as an individual artist uh, in a sea full of other, you know, artists trying to do the same thing as you. Yeah, it's good advice. No, it's definitely it's definitely true though. It's a uh, this is not a career path where you can just kind of do it casually. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah it's it's something you gotta constantly work on your craft, constantly try to strive to be better. Yeah, and you're even after school, you're still constantly a student. You're yeah. still constantly learning. Even during school too, uh, one of the things I noticed was like uh, this major. Uh, if you're, you know, if you choose to go through the school route, which you don't have to for this uh, career path, but if you do, um, it's not a major that you could really like BS your way through. Um, like back in uh, kinesiology, like if I had a test, I could be like, oh, I'll study like the night before or something. You know, I could BS through this test. But then in this major, you can't be like, oh, I can do this project the night before. Like if you do that, you're going to <laughs> die. You know, <laughs> like if you like, oh, I could do this canvas painting and like you know, overnight, the, or the I could 40 make 40-hour cube renders. Yeah. Or like, you know, I can make this animated short like and like overnight. Like, no, you can't do that. You that's why you have to be dedicated. You can't BS your way through this, you know? Mm-hmm. Totally. Thank you so much for joining us today. Where can our listeners find you? And is there anything else you want to plug? Uh yeah, uh you guys can find me just on my Instagram. Uh it's Marvinator with two N's M-A-R-V-I-N-N-A-T-O-R. Yeah, stream Fast and Furious season two just dropped on Netflix. Um oh. so stream that. Mm-hmm. And yeah. <laughs> Great. Well, if you enjoyed our interview with Marvin today, please rate us on Anchor, Spotify, or wherever you tune in. Follow us on Twitter and Instagram at straightaheadap. And let us know your response to today's in-between questions. Or if you have any suggestions for future in-between questions, contact us on social media or send us an email at straightaheadpodcast at gmail.com. If you have any suggestions for guests, please contact us. We love discovering new artists and want to use this platform to boost these voices of the future. And finally, a big thanks to our music composer, Daniel Rodier. Thanks again for listening. And thank you once again to our guest, Marvin, who has a bright future straight ahead. Until next time, have a wonderful day. Bye, everyone. Bye, guys. Thank you.